Hello and welcome to the Wonder Baba podcast. My name is Sheena Mitchell. I'm a pharmacist and mum of three. I'm here to chat all about child and family health. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Maura Finn. Dr. Finn is a GP in Ennis and we wanted to have a chat because there was a recent survey conducted by Sanofi, who are a global biopharmaceutical company who focus on human health. So basically, we wanted to chat about it because it found that only 53% of Irish parents had heard of RSV. And this was at the end of the summer. So I know there's been a lot of awareness this year, but the whole survey kind of highlighted the amount of confusion there is about the various viruses and illnesses that we face in the winter season. So myself and Dr. Finn just wanted to highlight some information on that. And we also chat a little bit about the difference between a viral and a bacterial infection and how to tell them apart. Obviously, with strep A circulating as well as RSV, it can be really useful to know what happens when you go to the doctor, if you need to go to the doctor and, you know, what's more likely to be viral and what's more likely to be bacterial. So thank you so much, Dr. Finn, for joining me today on a Wonder Baba podcast. Um, Would you mind just introducing yourself and letting us know what you do on a daily basis? Okay, um, my name is Maura Finn and I have been a GP in Ennis since 1998, which ages me, but, you know, <laughs> there I am. Um, I... Have, my practice has been, you know, it's it's a family practice. It's primarily families, young kids. I've kind of really grown a, a kind of a women's practice from the point of view of, kind of menopause and all that stuff because as I get older, my patients get older too. Um, I have two kids who are teenagers now and um, I do a lot of media work as well. I, I do a, a slot with Claire Byrne and RT every two or three weeks and... I talk on local radio and I, I give interviews and stuff like that. So I kind of give a little bit of my homespun dash GP knowledge to people who anybody wants to listen. And sometimes I hope it's useful. So that's what I do. And I love that because that is exactly what I do in the pharmaceutical world, because I think it sounds like it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when you're passionate about a particular area of medicine and for me obviously it's you know children and family health and for you obviously you know kids health and women's health I think you can deliver you know a much more attentive I suppose clinical service and you know you've much more drive to deliver good solid information to women and families that you know who need it so yeah, I hope so. Yeah, because you, you, it's based on experience and then personal experience, not just medical yeah. experience, but there's more to it than that. And you learn from the people you interact with, don't you, Sheena? Like, I'm sure you find it in the pharmacy too. Like, I learn from my patients. I learn from my exposure to the illnesses with the kids, how people react to things, how people deal with issues, be they kind of emotional or psychological as well as physical. And, you know, yeah. so that's how ex- experience grows you and... um Hopefully from that, you're able to kind of give other people a little bit of an insight. A hundred percent, because I know I was um, obviously a pharmacist for 10 years before I became a parent. And I, you know, obviously I was giving pharmaceutical advice to parents before that. But I found that once I had children myself 
and obviously I have three kids now. I I just felt that I was able to add so much more to, I suppose, my suite of advice from from Absolutely. drawing in. You know, yeah. you know how hard it is to get an antibiotic into them, for instance. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, and like there's some battles that are just going to be tricky no matter what, but there are a lot of tricks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Knowing the tricks is the answer. Yeah. So we are the, the granny in the corner. You, you're the mother in the corner and the granny in the corner. Okay? Yeah. I think I think there's less of an age gap than you seem to think there is. But anyway, we're doing this over the phone. So I'm going to comfortably hide behind my microphone. Um, OK, so today we are here. Obviously, I mentioned there um, that Sanofi have done a study recently just in relation to RSV and I suppose the level of understanding that there is about the disease in the community. And it was quite alarming to but understandable, like very believable, that only 53% of Irish parents had even heard of RSV. Why do you think that might be? I I, I think, it, yeah, it was alarming. Um, I would imagine now that study was published a couple of months ago, wasn't it? Or uh, earlier in Researched November. In August, and I think. Or, in research yeah, in August. Yeah. I, I'd imagine the figures are actually an awful lot higher now because of the, the recent coverage that um, I think it's because it's the name, RSV, you know, a respiratory syncytial virus. It is, it has always been there. We've always been dealing with it. Um, it's, people are not aware of the, the name RSV, but they are aware of this kind of chesty thing that kids get in the winter, you know. So maybe, maybe it's that, you know, and it's, maybe it's about kind of naming it as opposed to not being aware that children actually get sick and get seasonal illnesses and that children with kind of wheezy coughing illnesses can actually get quite sick. So to give parents their due, it may be that as much as uh, a lack of the information, you know. And, you know, I suppose pre-COVID, I hate to talk about COVID, but in the context of what we're talking about, it is so important because, you know, there's a lot in the media about this immunity gap and whatnot. And we've seen, like we know with RSV, that it's the major cause of respiratory illness in kids under two and the leading cause of hospitalisation in under fours. And that has not changed. As you said there, RSV has always been there. So those facts remain, I suppose, stable. But what's changed since COVID is that, you know, the the incidence of first infections are higher because less children have had opportunity, shall we say, to experience a first infection during the two kind of, we'll call them lockdown years. And we know yes. that first infection is the more, most severe, you know, generally presentation of this kind yes, of virus. It, it, and, you know, that's cold comfort to a parent, but it's very sick child with their first RSV infection, but it is their worst presentation. And if that happens at a, at a three-year-old, which would have been quite unusual, because 90% of kids previously would have been exposed to RSV before the age of two. So if you have a three-year-old with a bad first RSV, and then you have a small, younger sibling, you know, that's, that's probably one of the problems, that, you know, this is a serious infection that, you know, is that's really challenging the, the older child but also then the younger children have no resources when it comes to RSV and really need to be minded some it is still worth noting <coughs> excuse me noting that the majority of children with RSV do have minor illness and some have very few symptoms and, and it's not even detectable um, and it's only a small proportion that actually really run into trouble or develop bronchiolitis yeah. But even with that, that's the really important thing. Bronchiolitis can make a child seriously unwell because primarily because their lungs are under pressure 
and they can't feed well. So you've got two major reasons why they actually struggle. They're finding it difficult to get oxygen in and they're actually getting really dehydrated and weak because they're not being able to hydrate and feed themselves as well. And that's... that's, Sorry, go on. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's an interesting point there and I'm always conscious when I'm talking about RSV and then suddenly we start talking about bronchiolitis that there's, I suppose opportunity for confusion there so just to explain oh, to people good yeah, idea yeah. okay actually do you know what might be interesting Sheena if you, if you don't mind it's like can I explain what a previous kind of our, our winter seasons pre-COVID if you don't mind yes, <laughs> you know we just absolutely like the, that would be kind of that's how every year we always assumed we'd have a really really heavy winter season with childhood illness and the winter season tend to be, you know, you can number, number it these days, but, you know, you'd kind of say it was from November until February um, and always peaked around Christmas, which was, Joy you know, as you know, in your business as well, like, you know, it, the people, people are so delighted, but it was the time when kids get sickest and parents are most concerned about them. So you'd always have a lot of respiratory illness primarily. Um, the norovirus, the kind of the... Um, Tummy bug, the winter vomiting bug is a thing as well, but that's, that's kind of as quick and easy and they tend to get over it within 24 hours. So the majority of kids that you would see and I would see would be presenting with anything ranging from snuffles to quite serious respiratory complications. And that has always been the case. Yeah. Then um, you, what you would do is you would assess them and see how they were managing. And primarily what you're doing is you're trying to assess the child to see... Um, you know what? What are what is what their baseline lines are like? You know how's their color? How are they behaving? You know, you I could look into a waiting room and can pick out the sick kids before I even talk to anybody because you know they're the ones who snuggled into mommy. The ones who are running around or playing are not sick. Now that's oh, children. Two of a, children always you, make fools of parents in this situation, though. <laughs> Why not? Well, well, there, there, there is an ele- there is an element of that, but you know, with experience, you know that the ones that are really sick can yeah. do that. You know. The ones that are really sick are, are, are very flat. You know, that's kind of a term we use in medicine and it, it might sound a bit weird, but it's just that really lethargic, you know, they're really not, they're not crying too much and they're not kind of given out. They're just actually kind of really flat in themselves. Yeah. Um, and that can be because they're either dehydrated or actually really struggling to breathe or both. Yeah. So they're the things that we really look for. So you look for their baseline, so you look at their color, you look at their activity, you look at their temperature. Their temperature is above 39, we always say check them. If it, they're younger, if it's above 38 and you can't control it, we always say check them as well. Um, and I train doctors and I, every single child that comes into the surgery should be examined head to toe. And that means opening the, the vest of a baby, you know. Yeah. You unpick the three buttons underneath the nappy and you look at their belly and you look at their respiratory rate and the effort they're putting in and their breathing. Because you could have a child that the parents think is, um, you know, a sore throat or a sore ear. That's a classic thing. You know, they're at their ear. And in fact, when you look at the belly and you listen to the chest, you realize that they actually have a problem in their lungs as well. So you have to do a full head to toe with them and, they, you know, listen to their heart and look for their respiratory rate and their heart rate. And then you examine the throat and the ears and you just see how they are generally. After that, then, you can really do, you can really give it, an experience-based assessment of whether this is a viral infection, which is when there's usually a bit of everything. That's probably the easiest way to explain viruses. They're snotty, they might have a sore throat, they have a bit of a cough, they're just off. That's a virus. 
a bacterial infection tends to be focused in one particular area. And that's probably the easiest way to differentiate between the two. So with a bacterial infection, you might have one ear that's really acutely swollen and painful or a nasty throat where the, um, there's pus on the tonsils and that's obvious and a bad smell off the breath or maybe a bad chest infection that, and without anything else. And they tend to be the illnesses that are focused in one area and therefore you treat with an antibiotic. Whereas the viral infections, that more kind of bit of everything, unfortunately you can't give an antibiotic because it doesn't make any difference and you treat them supportively with keeping the temperature under control and managing the symptoms and making sure they're not becoming distressed with their symptoms. And I suppose that's kind of the pediatric medicine in a nutshell. Well, I know a lot of people as well, you know, and there is, there is a real risk of it happening now. It's not as common, but maybe important to mention to parents that, you know, if a viral illness isn't clearing up, you know, within kind of maybe five to ten days, depending on what suspected um, infection it is, like if the symptoms are getting worse and not better in that time period, um, yeah. that there is the potential for a secondary bacterial infection or even things, you know, like a persistent kind of RSV, bronchiolitis, cough. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that, and that is one of the... So one of the reasons why, you know, when you're, you're assessing the charge, you're giving people, the parents, that, that information about if this doesn't improve within this time frame, then you either need to return or sometimes we'll give what's called a holding antibiotic because you're covering that possible secondary bacterial infection and that happens because you know you imagine a child with all that mucus in their in their ears and on in their lungs yeah. it's really wet kind of mucusy material that bacteria can get into and really thrive in so yeah. it's like you know that's how they get a secondary bacterial infection with that they get kind of they've been improving and suddenly they get a lot worse and they need to be treated with an antibiotic in that situation and likewise, if you've got something like RSV, bronchiolitis being a presentation of RSV, um, and if, if they're struggling and if they're getting tired, they need to be seen and need to be given some. This, very often, we try really hard not to send them into hospital because, you, you know, nobody wants the child in hospital and nobody wants to overburden the A&Es. Sometimes we just need to go in and be on a drip for an hour, you know, a few hours. Yeah. Give them a bit of hydration, a little bit of supportive oxygen. That's often all they need. And they can often be home within about 12 hours, you know. Um, and, you know, you're just doing that to just make sure that this child is not at the level where they're struggling so hard that they've become overwhelmed by the illness. And I suppose that's the really important thing for parents to know is, like, look for help if you're not sure. Follow your instincts. But, the, you know, most of these things are minor and kids bounce back. And if they're not, always, always look for help and ask for some direction on it. And I think as mothers, you know, even when your child has a cold, you you worry. So I think it's funny. I've heard a few conversations about this and I've heard some wonderful things from the hospitals, comments from the hospitals saying things like, obviously, you know, we don't want to burden the GPs or the hospitals unnecessarily. So, uh, you know, of course, mm. as a parent, you're going to worry if your child is sick, but looking for maybe warning symptoms and things that are concerning and we can run through them, you know, in a sense, yeah. in terms of RSV. But the one thing I heard, um, and I just can't remember who from a hospital say recently, was that whilst you know, no one is ever going to give out to you for being concerned about your child. And if you need to take that trip to A&E, there'll always be room for your baby, no matter how, 
you know, blocked up the system That's is. That's so important yeah. to hear. Yeah, isn't it? It it's really so is, actually. Yeah. yeah. And likewise, and likewise in, in general practice, you know, you know, and I know there'll be kind of like, oh, God, you're full and we can't get, you know, but there's a golden rule. If a child is sick, they're seen. That's it, you know. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> you know, you're, ne- you're never wasting anybody's time as long as the child is, you know, okay at the end. That's that's the most important thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and parents need that reassurance. And one thing, actually, you know, I, I was joking there about kind of spotting a sick child in the waiting room, but there is, I, I, like when I say I, I train doctors, um, you teach them to always listen to a parent because, you know, you might think this child is okay. And particularly if you're young GP and you're not really that experienced or young hospital doctor, if the parent is really, really worried, you take them seriously and you do not second guess them. You actually kind of follow through on that because parents' instincts about their children are probably the, the top diagnostic criteria in a lot of things. Yeah. So it's really well it's important for parents to know that trust their own instincts and they'll hone their instincts over time too you know if you've got your first child you're going to be more concerned and you know your second you might have seen this and you might actually be able to cope a little bit better with it but don't be afraid to ask that's the really important oh, message to get child, out there then you're ignoring everything and going unless you well, well enough I don't want to hear about that it there is that too or, or if, if you're the, the mother of uh, an GP, you just you know they accuse you, they used to say, say to me it was like I treated a viral illness in illnesses like a computer turn it on and off again and you'll be grand you know <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I do have a 16 year old upstairs in bed now who was in my bed all night because she was dealing with it sickly so it never ends you know <laughs> oh, don't say that don't say that you're not filling well, me with the only time there's the only time they want to snuggle in with you actually when they're 16 so well, I suppose you take it you take it where it's coming yeah absolutely um, on that note right it's an interesting point the gut instinct and mm. the I suppose the the mother's instinct because sometimes things like lethargy you know so tiredness and lack of energy can be identifiable to a mum who knows the child, but not to a doctor who maybe thinks that child's fine if the mother yeah. knows that that child's normally bouncing off the walls and this is not normal for them, you know? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's where you have to follow that. You know, you you know, if, you know, if that child has been flat as a pancake all day and then it's only kind of perked up because they've come outside and they've actually cooled down yeah. and they're in a new environment for the first time for hours, you know, um, and there's other kids in the waiting room. Yeah, of course, you know, yeah. you, you have to take that seriously. So as a parent, always be um, always be confident enough to say exactly what you want to say, you know. Yeah. Don't be afraid to kind of give your opinion on your child because that's all information. And, and diagnosis of anything is based on the information that we can get from examining a child, but also the history, which is the story that the parent tells us. So if you don't tell us the story and if you're not not confident enough to kind of give your uh, interpretation of what's going on, then something might be missed. So have confidence in your own instincts. So important. And in terms Mm. of warning symptoms, I always refer, so apologies, because I'm always like, hmm, any, you know, signs of dehydration. So you've got a child who's got a dry dry nappy for more than 12 hours or taking less than 50% of their fluids, a bit of blue colouring around the mouth and lips. And even, I don't know if you found... um, read a lot so for me it's theoretical for you <laughs> you'll have experience but <laughs> kind of the area behind the ears um and neck apparently can can go a little bit blue as well as just around the mouth and lips 
Um, yeah, now mind you, if you have a child that's going a little bit blue coloration, it's, it's, a, really off, it's a dangerous <laughs> sign. Yeah. That is an urgent ring and ambulance sign. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about looking at the color of a child, you're looking to see if they're pale or very flushed off. And yeah. if they're if they're blue, they're stressed. And yeah. you, you know, that's not something you you mess around with. You go call an ambulance in that situation because that dusky kind of slightly grey, bluey coloration is a sign that they're not getting enough oxygen. Yeah. And I, I don't want to alarm people to think that that means that they're in imminent danger, but it does mean that they need strong supportive therapy straight away. And in terms so. of scales of difficulty breathing, like we know that babies and kids can be coughing and especially the bronchiolitis cough can be quite persistent and tricky. Mm. But we always, I suppose, an increase in speed of breathing or drawing in the chest or long pauses yeah. in breathing. You know. Yes, exactly. And it, it, it's kind of, when you say an increase in rate of breathing, that's really tough for a parent to assess because, you know, you don't notice in a normal healthy child, you don't notice them breathing, you know. Okay. Um, and what you notice, you look at a baby and they've got this lovely kind of gentle, their belly's moving up and down and they breathe. So what, if you notice, notice them breathing or if you... You don't have to count it, but if you look at their belly and you look and you see the ribs are actually kind of being sucked in a bit, or their belly is moving up very quickly when they're trying to take a breath, or if there's any kind of, um, there's often a little bit of a gap underneath the rib, the bottom of the rib because there's that suck, that's a sign the baby is distressed. The other sign is that um, they flare their nostrils. Now, that sounds a bit odd, but actually you'll notice it if you look for it. And, and it's basically that they're, Really, I'm doing this now, which is no use to you, but, <laughs> but, it, but it's, uh, you know, they're actually really making that big effort to get air in. So their nostrils actually flare out. And that's a sign, again, that they are a little bit distressed. So, you know, counting the number of breaths is difficult to do. But if you can, if they're obvious and, you know, it seems to be faster than you'd normally notice, get the baby checked. That's really important. And that's particularly important in babies under a year. Okay. particularly under six months and absolutely under three months. Okay, and people can kind of expect um, a mild case to resolve within two weeks. And the one problem I find um, in the pharmacy is that parents come in initially, you know, maybe day one or two with a child with a runny mm. nose and a bit of a cough, but not too bad. Um, but then they come in maybe a week later and say, Phew, on day three Still or five, yeah. we ended up in hospital because the, the peak of the cough and the difficulty yeah. breathing in young babies happens at that kind of day three to five stage. It does, yeah. And and that's the, and even if it doesn't peak or get really bad, it's very hard to have a child that's actually just off form and snuffly, even without that bad peak for two weeks. Yeah. You know, you think it's never ending. And then if you've got more than one child at home, you know, the other one might be getting, beginning to get it. And you may have like a month or two months of the year where you feel that you've never been out of the doctor's surgery or out of the pharmacy. And, you you know, you, uh, you frequently have people that say, my children have been sick all winter. And it feels to them that they have. And it is because they've either been beginning a viral infection that's lingered um, or just getting over something. And a cough can go on for up to a month after a uh, viral infection has settled. Um, and that's, that's hard. And that leads to another question, Gina, which I'd be interested in your opinion on about what happens in childcare and creches when children are mm. unwell with something like this. Because, you know, 
parents have um, practical responsibilities as well. And, you know, if there, there's that lingering cough that can go on for that length of time, but the child is very well, yeah. so what this, do they do? This do they come, go back to... Yeah, so this has come up a lot during COVID because obviously mm-hmm. COVID, like any viral infection, can cause that kind of persistent lingering cough. So what I say yeah. to parents is... If your child is well and they have no symptom other than the cough and it's been 48 hours, you know, since they've had uh, any other symptom, whether it be, you know, kind of a fever or sore throat or ears, anything like that. If they, after a viral infection, if the child has recovered to full health other than the cough, that they can return to school or crash. You're watching mm. then for any change in cough. So if it's yeah. a new cough or a worsening of a cough or an additional symptom returning or coming back, then you're pulling them straight out again. But I think it's impractical, yeah. like even asthmatics. So there are some asthmatic children yeah. who unfortunately that don't yeah, they, do. they yeah. don't have asthmatic yeah. control. And that can take years to kind of perfect as the child ages. You know, um, they, they mightn't even have an asthma diagnosis. They might be, you know, being obviously treated for asthmatic type symptoms from kind of yeah. you know young age and it could take till they're four five or six to get proper control and I suppose assessment on the situation and those kids can yeah. be coughing every time it's cold Do you know what I mean? and actually there's a, there's a whole other kind of diagnostic criteria now and asthma that they're actually that kind of recurring wheezy cough that isn't actually ever going to be diagnosed as asthma so you know so they're, they're the kids you're talking about yeah. you know and they they cough at night, and every time they get a snuffy nose, they get a bad cough as well. Um, yeah, but, um, so what do you do? I mean, the, the, the issue, like, I understand the creche and childcare and school kind of concerns in that they don't want to be a breeding ground for new infection. But on the other hand, you can't be sending every parent who's managing a child at home very well and knows that the child is fine into a pharmacist or a doctor to say, give the kind of uh, almost like kind of the holy seal and say, yes, the child can go back to school. You know, that's what overwhelms the the services and also damages the parents' credibility and confidence in that situation, you know. Most importantly, it's damaging for kids to be missing out on more, you know, education or socialisation at that age. So I think a cough plus any other symptom is stay home. A cough after recovery that is the same cough and isn't a new cough is go to school. Do you know? Yeah, so, that's, a, that's a good kind of boss line actually to use. Yeah. Um, I wish I wish you'd tell all the questions that. I am. Um, <laughs> do you know what I? You can find information which kind of says that on the HC website in relation to COVID information yeah. that you know a cough alone is not you know a new cough uh, is a, a potential infection, but a lingering yeah. cough in a post-viral situation you know, is expected. I, and, and I suppose my concern is that very often parents are in a position that they've been, you know, they would, we would say that to them, and, you know, um, if it was a phone consultation, you could say that, but it's, it's still an interaction that they need to have with a GP, which is completely unnecessary because mm-hmm. um, some other entity has decided that the, there had to be a professional who's given this opinion as opposed yeah. to the parents trusting their instincts. And I, I guess it, I understand it's a dilemma for everybody, but it, it is, it, it's a problem, you know, it's, um, it is difficult uh, and it's yeah, difficult so. because there are unfortunately situations where people are under a lot of pressure and mm-hmm. they maybe 
have, feel like they've no choice but to send their child to crash and maybe it's not appropriate. Yeah. And this is where this conflict arrives, where you've got yeah. very rightly sensitive parents not wanting a sick child in the crash, which is correct and absolutely yeah. valid. Yeah. And I would be one of them. But yeah. you've got that balance with trust, because if it's, you know, it's a bit subjective, isn't it? Like it is. It is. It's really subjective. And, 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 you know, you have to trust that every parent is trying to do mm. the right thing by their child and the other, and that we all have a social responsibility as well as a personal the, responsibility. Like, there's no doubt that every parent is doing their best in their life, but whether they're doing mm. their best in terms of these guidelines is sometimes a yeah. conflict, you know, and yeah. just through life. Yeah. One thing just before we kind of finish up, it's very topical at the moment and I just would love to hear a little bit of information and maybe reassurance for you, for parents in relation to the, I suppose, assumed increased circulation of scarlet fever based on what's going on in the UK and how that can sometimes then you know, increased levels of scarlet fever may increase the levels of invasive strep A infections because they're both streptococci based yeah. infections. And actually, just just to add to that, because I know a really important question that people will want to know is how do we know the difference? And just to highlight the importance of the, the potential role of antibiotics for strep A versus absolutely no use in bronchiolitis. OK, yeah. And I suppose that's what I was trying to explain earlier about the kind of uh, a viral it's a very inexact science unfortunately um but viral infections tend to be every do you know the way when you have a flu you have a snotty nose and your toes are sore you know every bit of you is affected by it um so you may have a kind of the snotty nose they might have conjunctivitis they may have a cough they may have you know, it might have a bit of vomiting and diarrhea. So viral in- infections tend to affect every part of you. Bacterial infections are focused on one particular organ. That is the basic difference between them. So a bacterial infection will give you um, a bad tonsillitis, for instance, or a bad ear infection or a bad um, lower respiratory tract infection or pneumonia. That's the fundamental difference between them. Um, and a bacterial infection requires an antibiotic to clear it. A viral infection does not, and an antibiotic makes no difference to it. However, a lot of bacterial infections start in similar ways. Um, what, one other thing is that the bacterial infections tend to start a lot quicker, actually. You know, a, a virus, you kind of, there's snuffly and it gets worse and worse and worse. And like you talked about with the RSV, there's snuffly and then day three they get worse. Whereas with a bacterial infection, they were fine yesterday and they're really sick today. That, now, again, this is not an exact science, but these are, are rules that people can go by. Tend to have a very, very high temperature from day one with a bacterial infection that is hard to manage. Um, and, and the bacterial infection will not clear without antibiotic cover. That is the essential difference between them. Um, strep A infection has always been around, and it's really important that parents know this is not a new thing, this isn't some new scary thing that's come out there. Every winter we deal with strep A. Actually, strep A and strep B are around in the summertime as well. Um, okay. And 20% of us actually store strep A as a what's called a commensal. So it's a normal bacteria that we have in our nose or in our systems. And it doesn't do anything to us. Some people then are much more vulnerable to it. Okay. And the commonest prepara- uh, presentations of strep A are in petigo, which people know a lot about, you know, that horrible kind of crusty, oozy sore that 
children get in their hands and faces in particular yeah. and it's very contagious and that needs to be treated with a- antibiotic either creams or oral antibiotics um, sore throat which it gives this kind of um, the, the classic scarlet fever presentation is a sore throat really red tongue they tend to be look kind of white around the mouth but the rest of them is really flushed that's kind of the classic yeah. scarlet fever look and that's just a particular presentation of a strep A infection. Very common. We see it all the time. And when we see it, we treat it with an antibiotic and the children tend to do very well. But as always with anything, some children are a bit more vulnerable and some children don't respond as quickly to antibiotics and can get a worse illness. And that has always been the case. Um, there isn't anything new and different that is actually out there to frighten people right now. It's just what's really important is that you know that um, if a child is presenting with these these sort of signs, get the child checked in case it is a bacterial infection. And if they're not responding quickly, or if they seem to be deteriorating, go into the hospital or do you know get the follow up appointment. Don't be afraid to check again if you're not careful and not not sure. And we do that in surgery a lot. We see a child one day and say, bring them back in the morning again, have a little look at you again to see if they're improving or deteriorating, and that kind of we call it then if the child needs to be admitted. Yeah. But the majority of strep A infections are minor and they respond really, really well and quickly to antibiotics. In the pharmacy, I always say to parents, like, just like that, come back to me tomorrow. We're going to do a period yeah. of what I call watchful waiting. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's, it's a great phrase. Now, and, and I think parents like that because it's that little backup that they needed as well, you know. Um, and we need it. I, like, I need it as a clinician as well. I'm sure you feel the same, Sheena, that, yeah. you know, you see a child the next day and you can kind of, okay, oh, yeah, 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 he's so much better. That's great, you know. And, it, you know, when you're looking at your own child, it's hard to see that sometimes. It's hard to be so subjective about it, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, we do that frequently and it's, it's, it's a really good thing to do. But just trust your instincts again. You know, if you're not sure check the child out but invasive streptococcal disease is an unusual um, complication of a streptococcal illness it doesn't happen very often thankfully when it does it's serious and it needs to be treated really aggressively but most of these streptococcal infections respond very quickly to antibiotics there are problem is actually de- deciding which ones need the antibiotic and which, are, wow. which don't and that's that's our clinic clinical kind of dilemma as well and um I'm you going, know, I, I'm going sorry? to do, I'm just going to ask you a little um, favour on behalf of pharmacists all over Ireland right now. Okay. <laughs> Could all GPs and prescribing clinicians please write a first line and then a second line antibiotic for this because we are suffering from shortages of some and not all antibiotics. Ah, so, for example, okay, so the yeah. likes of some of the, um, you know, amoxicillin, kind mm-hmm, of phenoxymethyl yeah. penicillins, some of them are in short supply. Some pharmacies have them. And a second line yeah. treatment for a strep A infection would be, for example, clarithromycin suspension. Um, yeah. And that is currently available. So uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, ju- I'm just solving, uh, solving solutions here. Uh, Thank you. And actually, that, you'd be solving a lot of problems for me, too, with the kind of yeah. phone call back. Spread um, the word. Interesting. Two, yes, two antibiotic choices. <laughs> two antibiotic choices. We'll have a first and a second oh. line, please. Thank you.
Absolutely. Well, that's good to know. I, I will, I'll certainly say that in my surgery anyway. And it, yeah, that's a really clever idea because, God, it's a whole layer of work for you. It's a whole layer of worry for the parents and it's a whole other layer of work for my admin staff and for me. Then. And when people go out um, and hear, OK, I can't get first line, they think, well, second line isn't going to be as good. And really, it's the, the oh, lucky yeah, thing is yeah. that is actually sensitive to quite a few antibiotics. And yeah, we can work. Yeah, OK, we can work around it. So we just need that. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good lesson. Okay, thank you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm. I've learned from you as well. I knew I would. I, actually, there was one other thing I wanted to say just about the kind of the decision making about antibiotics and not. A lot of it, it, it should be collaborative, you know. And I think that's the same in most medicine now. I, I, I think the days that the patriarchal kind of doctor says, you know, should be over. Um. So, you know, if you're in a situation and you're, you know, you're adamant that your child is very sick and the doctor's given you their opinion and they're yeah. saying, no, it's a virus and, you know, it shouldn't be a row. <laughs> it really shouldn't, yeah. you know. There's, it, you should be able to come to a conclusion. And we very frequently give these holding prescriptions. Hang on to this script. If the child's getting sick, um, sicker, you can give it. But... The worry with that is that the child is getting so sick and that, you know, they're just getting an antibiotic and need more. So this, so the, our role as clinicians and yours as well, Sheena, is to kind of give that information as to, you know, you can do this and you can do this, but come back if things are deteriorating. Yeah. That's the thing that we need to get out there, you know. Yeah, one GP visit or one, you know, I suppose visit to any only defines a picture in time and tomorrow the picture may look different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that frequently happens. And we, you know, and we sometimes send children into the hospital and I would do it very reluctantly and infrequently. But when you do, they might see this junior SHO in a hospital who says, oh, they're grand and sent them home again. You're like, you're furious. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah. you know, this, this happens. So don't be afraid of that. too. And there is a, there's a, we have a little rule in the surgery, too, that, you know, three strikes and you're out, which means that if a child has been seen three times in surgery and you're really not, they're not improving, they need to be getting another opinion on this in the hospital scenario, you know. So we don't always know everything either and just just be aware that we're all fallible and we, we need to kind of give, you know, parents give the information as they see it, we give our information as we see it and we come up with a plan together. Okay. Thank you so, so much for talking to me today. It's been absolutely... It's been a pleasure. Thank you. No, it's been so <laughs> great. And I know, like, you've given me an awful lot of clarity, so I'm sure you've given an awful lot of my listeners a lot of clarity. And sometimes I think it's just nice for parents to hear that, you know, GPs, pharmacists, we all care, we're all in the same boat and we're all navigating this together. And yes, it, you know, it's not a great winter, but we'll get through it. And by we, being aware of the symptoms of everything that's going on, and I'll certainly keep, you know, popping up as much information as I can on my Facebook and Instagram and on the podcast. And I think knowledge is power. Yeah, and absolutely, that's yeah. all we can do is know when to act. Yes. Perfect. Great lesson to, to end with. Yeah. <laughs> Tina, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a million.